0: Well, good evening. My name is Matt Kerber. I'm a pastor here at Silver Reform. It's good to be with you. Uh, I typically don't preach a lot at the evening service, but it's a joy to be with you this evening. Uh, we had a bit of a different schedule this weekend, and um, I'm happy to get slotted into this spot. Um, the passage that we are looking at is from the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, verses uh, 4 to 13. Next week, I believe, John will be starting us into a series in 1 Peter. Is that right, John? So uh, we were sort of over the holidays picking up a few sermons here and there on different passages. Uh, The passage that we're looking at is one that we've looked at before in the past. In fact, there was a sermon on part of this about five or six Mm -hmm. weeks ago. But this is a passage I've been working on a lot in my own life. It's become fairly personal for me. So when I had a chance to uh, speak to you this evening, I thought I'd like to go back to that and and revisit things we've talked about before. I'll read the passage and then uh, together we'll uh, agree with each other that this is God's word and we give him thanks for it. Uh, So the, the scripture reading from Philippians chapter 4 verses 4 to 13. Rejoice in the Lord always. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the peace of God will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. I was talking to a, a friend at the bus stop uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, and uh, we both were watching our kids get on the bus, and I was talking to him. I said, Dave, uh, do you ever feel anxious at work? Dave's a contractor. He has a business and several crews of people work working for him, and he, when I asked him the question, he turned to me and he laughed and he said, Matt, I don't know anyone who owns their own business who doesn't feel anxious all the time. I thought, I find some comfort in that. As a pastor, I find pastoral ministry often is anxiety-producing for me. I deal with situations beyond my control, and they often reveal things about myself that are uncomfortable. On my uh, bad days, I sit and dream of what it would be like to be a contractor, to (laughs) saw things and hammer things and paint things and have something done at the end of the day. But Dave reminded me, the grass is not always greener. A recent survey showed that over 40 percent of all Americans report anxiety in the workplace, and larger numbers of Americans than ever before are, are, are reporting high levels of anxiety in various places in their lives. I was listening to a podcast as I was driving the other day, and the speaker began his talk by saying, "America is an anxious place." There are many theories for why this may be. A simple one is, people are simply reporting more what is always true. That to be human is to live on great instability, with many fearful things surrounding you in the world. In some ways, fear and anxiety is an understandable response to an often frightening world. But there are other factors in modern life that may be increasing it. Uh, Sociologists uh, observe that there are many changes in America that may be increasing our anxiety and our instability. Some of them could be that we live in a time of uh, turmoil, social and cultural change, uh, where many groups of people can be fearful, and understandably so, uh, that our country is changing in ways that may not be so good. The instability and uncertainty of who we are and how we live and what's going on can create a, a general sense of anxiety. We also live in a time where bad news can reach us like never before. I have a phone in my pocket I try not to look at all the time, but if I swipe right on it, when it's turned on on properly, when I swipe right, the news headlines come up, and the truth is they're almost all bad. The ones that don't deal with one of the Kardashians doing something on Instagram, the rest of them, I guess that's kind of bad in its own way, but, but the rest of them deal with something bad happening in the world, and I mostly can't do anything about it. One author said that part of the modern problem is we have a very low, uh, a bad th- ratio of information to response. That is, we know bad things happening all over the world, all over our country, and we can do very little about it. These can be factors that increase our anxiety. But but finally, one of the things that many sociologists notice is that Americans are increasingly isolated Many of the, the systems and structures and institutions that gave stability, the, the uh, uh, community systems, the churches and the families and the, inst- the broader families and the other institutions have increasingly lost their power. Americans are often increasingly isolated. We are uh, 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 have less points of contact to help us in times of anxiety. Well, all of these reasons could be true, but I know for me, anxiety is often real. I think it's important to note, as we see in the passage, uh, uh, that anxiety is part of the Christian story. Paul warns the church not to be anxious. He does that, reminding us it's very easily likely that they could have been anxious. One of the most common uh, commands in the Bible is, do not fear. And we recognize God gives it to us so often because as humans, fear is a very real and present uh, part and circumstance of our life. I I was struck as we sang through Psalm 130 that often the Christian life is one in which we learn to move to God in the midst of circumstances that produce fear and anxiety. I want to say that in the very beginning. We don't want to have illusions about the Christian life. I don't want to offer you a false promise that if you become a Christian, suddenly everything's easy and you never worry again. That's certainly not been my experience, and it's certainly not the experience of most of the authors of the Bible. We think of the Psalms that David writes as he pours out his heart to God, bringing before him his matters of concern. It's not as if we become Christians and fear instantly disappears, but for the Christian, fear and anxiety become one of the primary places in which we can meet God and grow in true spirituality. In other words, what I'd like you to think about today is that those places in your life where you have concern, maybe you would call that concern anxiety or fear, maybe just the difficulties that you face. The point is not that God will take them away as you come to Him and trust, but they become the places in which we encounter Him That's certainly true for me. Often, anxiety is the window into the realities of my own heart, what I'm trusting, what I'm believing. It becomes the basis in which God calls me to himself in renewed and deeper ways of dependency. As we look at the passage today, we'll see a couple of things. Where I'm going to borrow some language from Dave's sermon this morning. We see an objective truth in this passage. The Lord is at hand. It's really one of the most important things that we see in the passage, but it doesn't end there. We also see in this passage very subjective realities. We see ways in which uh, Paul speaks about uh, the peace of God being known to us and the contentment that comes from finding trust in Him. These are things that we can experience in our lives. Peace, God's presence, contentment. We're going to look at both of those things Uh, fairly quickly. But the third thing I want to spend a little more time on is that in this passage, in these three paragraphs, Paul outlines several practices, several ways that Christians are called, that all of us are called to respond to the power and the presence of God. In other words, in between this objective reality of God being at hand, powerful and present, and the peace and contentment that comes from trusting him Paul lists several practices, several things that we are called to do to deepen our awareness of God's power, to bring, in a sense, the the peace of God into our lives as God works in response to the ways he calls us to be faithful. So we'll do those three things. We'll briefly look at the, the... Presence of God, the peace of God, but then these several practices that we see. And There is a sermon outline notes. If you want to follow along, you can, you can follow along with the, the different things. So first of all, uh, the, uh, the presence of God, the subjective truth, the Lord is at hand. Uh, you may If you were here a couple weeks ago when Nam and Cho preached on it, he preached on just the first couple of verses. And as he, he kind of ended on this point, it's the point I want to begin on. The Lord is at hand. For Paul, in a, a discussion of anxiety and peace, God's power, our comfort in the midst of uncertainties, the central truth, the truth that all of this hangs on is that God is present. The Lord is at hand. He says, the Lord is close. Whenever I was, uh, we had young, younger children, they would sometimes uh, be afraid at night, and we would comfort them by reminding us them of of our presence and say we're here we're here today we were watching a a movie at home and it got a little more frightening than we had anticipated and my my uh older daughter was kind of uh cuddling into my shoulder and hiding her eyes from the movie and my wife looked at me and said reminder that you're close what's the kind of language that paul uses the lord is at hand close to you. If you think about how you would be standing with your hands down to the side, the things that are close to you, we might say, are are at hand. Paul says God is close. He's present. As you hear that, you might be thinking, that sounds good, but I just don't see it. I see a world full of trouble and problems. I see problems in my life, and I don't know the solutions to them. I've prayed about them, and I'm not sure God's doing anything right now. I want to remind you the the broader context of Philippians that help inform us as to what Paul probably is thinking about when he says the Lord is at hand. You may remember several chapters earlier in Philippians, uh, Paul says that, that Jesus was given the name Lord, the name that's above every name. He said Jesus, though he was one with God, lowered himself and in humility lived among us. We know what God is like through the person of Jesus. And this same Jesus humbled himself not only to live among us, but to give himself for us. He humbled himself to the point of death, Paul says. Jesus then was raised up. Raised up and given the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. When, When Paul says Lord... He's thinking of the character of God revealed through the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus, who was very much at hand, and Jesus, who now, having been raised in power and authority in the words of the Apostles' Creed, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, has poured out the Holy Spirit on the church and promised that He is with us even to the end of the age. As we gather in the name of Jesus, we do so in the promise that Jesus gives his spirit to be with us. Now, now just like for Jesus, uh, uh, faithfulness didn't mean he didn't suffer. In fact, Jesus suffered deeply because of his faithfulness. Jesus doesn't promise a life free of suffering, but he promises his presence in the midst of it. He promises you're not alone. The Lord is at hand Now, that that thing is true, whether we believe it or not. God is present, he's active, he's working. For someone who's trusting in Jesus and following him as a savior, Jesus is present in a saving way, sustaining and caring for you. The problem is we don't always feel it. In fact, sometimes the fears and anxieties can be far realer. The second thing we see in the passage is this subjective experience. We see it in several places, We see it, first of all, in Paul's concern that we not give in to worry and fear, that we don't be caught up in fear and anxiety as a manner of life. Instead, he promises in verse 9, the peace of God will be with you. And then he says, I think I gave you the wrong verse, but uh, he says in verse verse 7, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. And then later in verse 9, the God of peace will be with you. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. Verse 7, verse 9, the God of peace will be with you. And then later in verses uh, 11 and 12, Paul speaks of a contentment. A contentment that is deeper and broader than it can extend a wide range of experiences. Paul says, I have experienced contentment in the midst of having a lot. And I've experienced contentment in the midst of having a little. If we uh, lived for any amount of time at all, we know that they are actually two very different challenges. The challenges of being content when things are going well. The contentment that can be found in the midst of abundance is sometimes the hardest to find. We uh, often know of uh, stories of people who make it rich quick. It often doesn't go well for them. In fact, the stories of people who win the, uh, uh, win the lottery are often, almost always, tragedies. It doesn't go well for those who get rich quick. It's hard to be content in the midst of abundance. It's also hard to be content when we're brought low. But Paul says there's an unbelievable power of God I've come to know that helps me be content even in these various different types of experiences when it goes well We can be fearful of losing what's going well. Paul says there's a contentment there. And he says when it's going badly, and I'm deeply concerned and threatened and afraid, there's a contentment there as well. So we see the objective reality. The Lord is at hand. And we see this subjective experience, contentment and peace. How do we come to know those things? Well, throughout the passage, there are five commands that are given. Five things that uh, uh, Paul uh, tells us to do. We don't earn peace and salvation by doing, them. we don't generate them ourselves, but this is a human response to the power of God. And We find throughout the Bible that when God shows up and he does something and he comes near, he calls humans to respond to him. There are five things in the passage we see that God is calling us to do as a response to his reality and his saving power. The first of them we see in verse 4 is a call to rejoice. In between the power of God and our experience of peace and contentment, we see a call to rejoice. But what does it mean to rejoice? To rejoice is to reflect on the goodness of who God is. We know rejoicing because we do it for other things as well. It's a perfectly natural human response. It's natural that we would rejoice when uh, things are going well, when our our favorite sports team is succeeding. In fact, we know how to help others rejoice. Uh, My my cousin Justin is here today, and in his honor, I'll tell you a quick story about the two of us. We went to a uh, football game a year ago. It was a Thursday night game, and the Steelers were crushing the Tennessee Titans So badly that we got kind of bored. And as we sat in the stadium, we began to talk to the people who were around us and found that this couple in front of us who were wearing Tennessee Titans gear were actually from Canada, which didn't make any sense why there would be Canadians coming to Pittsburgh to root for the Tennessee Titans. And we came to find out there wasn't all that much more to the story. They just like coming to Pittsburgh and they're interested in sports. And as we heard them talk, we realized there is potential here that we could help them to see a new and better way to think about football. (laughs) And so as the third quarter rolled on and the game became increasingly less interesting, uh, uh, something genetic in both of us kicked in. And as we leaned forward, we began to whisper into their ears, you know, you don't really have to be a Titans fan. In fact... Maybe you just want to consider having the Steelers as even a secondary team. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about how much fun the Pittsburgh Steelers are? Let me tell you about the history of Pittsburgh and what the team means to them. And somewhere in the fourth quarter, Justin got them to trade a scarf for a terrible towel. And about 10 minutes later, I actually convinced them to wave it. It was was a a great, a great moment in my, my experience as a fan. Sharing something of my joy in a sports team with someone who otherwise didn't know it. I'd like to think today somewhere in Canada there's a couple of new Pittsburgh Steeler fans who've put their Tennessee Titans shirt in the closet. Football can be fun to rejoice in, but we all know that if you're actually a sports fan, you end up suffering far more than you rejoice. And even when your team wins, you're often faced with the hard reality that it really wasn't that big of a deal anyway. <laughs> the Steelers finally won the Super Bowl. My brother called me on the phone. This was in 2005, and he said, You know, Matt, it's really fun, but it doesn't feel as good as I dreamed for all those years. We don't really offer so much. That same, though, attentiveness we give to the other things around us, even when they're good, calls us here to rejoice in the Lord. And in some ways the same sorts of silly things we were doing in the football stadium are some of the ways in which we're called to cultivate and even share with others an appreciation for the greatness of God who's far far greater than any of our sports teams think and reflect on the things that he's done to share them with each other to encourage each other to think about and celebrate To remember the goodness of God to each of us personally and to us as groups. We do this often throughout the year. We came off a season of Thanksgiving and Christmas, natural times to think and reflect and rejoice in the goodness of God. Paul calls us to respond. One of the ways we respond here is we respond by rejoicing, reflecting and celebrating and lifting up the goodness of God. The God who Love does so much he gave his son to stand in our place that on the cross Jesus took the sin of ordinary people like me and you, nailed to the cross, he removed it. That's a story worth celebrating, isn't it? The second thing Paul tells us to, and I'll move a little more quickly here. The second thing he says is let your reasonableness be known. That was a very, it's a very interesting verse for me to think about one of our responses to the presence of God being near is to be reasonable. Now, The first one maybe makes a little more sense. If God is powerful and he's saving and he's present, we're going to rejoice. This is maybe a little anticlimactic at first, isn't it? Be reasonable, Paul says. The more I thought about it, the more powerful this became. We live in a world in desperate need of reasonableness, don't we? Let me put it this way. Think of it in reverse. If there is no God who's present and powerful, if there's no God who's able to work things for a good purpose, then in every situation, all we have is win or lose. And reasonableness doesn't seem like an option. Why is it that so many Americans are completely unreasonable these days? I think it's quite simply because A, they're afraid, and B, there's no other hope. Let me just put this before you and move on, but if you're a Christian and you know the Lord Jesus, if you know him as Lord, and you know God is at hand working for your good, one of the ways you testify to that is by being reasonable. Listening to people and saying, you know, that's a, you know I don't agree with you, but I, let me try and understand your argument. And I don't agree with your conclusion, but you know, maybe you said something along the way that I can, I can find some ground there. Reasonable. It's not the same thing as compromise. It's listening carefully and knowing that our argument isn't always right because we're fallible humans too. A reasonableness flows from an awareness of God's presence and knowing that he is ultimately the one who's at work. The third command here is probably the most obvious. Don't be anxious, Paul says, but pray. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious. Pray. The presence of God invites us to come and to ask for help in times of need. Prayer means admitting we can't do it on our own. It doesn't mean that we forego action, we stop doing anything, we don't just sit on our hands. But we believe that ultimately God's action is the most important. And often it's in the midst of prayer that we are reminded of those things we're called to do and those things we cannot do. I get confused sometimes, don't you? The the things we care about, that we're concerned about, that matter, but we can't control them. In prayer, we often remember that all we can do is let go. And yet those things also that in our lives God calls us to be faithful for. God calls us to action, to faithfulness, to engagement. In prayer, we find courage and strength to move forward, to take action in ways that reflect God's presence, he's at hand. For me, one of the more unnerving things I do as a pastor sometimes, invite means going to a person's house in the midst of a difficulty. Maybe something terrible happened or maybe they're angry at me or at the church. And there's always that moment where I've got out of the car and I go to the door and I'm about to knock and I think I don't really want to walk in right now. I don't know how to control this. It's going to be uncomfortable. It might go badly. The only thing that helps me in that moment is the concept that Paul gives here. The Lord is at hand. He's present. I, I don't know the solutions. <laughs> Most of the time, I don't know any. But God promises he's at hand and he's present and he's working. And that can change, isn't it? So sometimes in our prayer, it means we We hold tight to that as we knock on the door and step into the thing that's hard, whatever that may be for you. Fourth, Paul tells us to be aware of what we think about. Sort of why I thought of this as a good New Year sermon. What are you thinking about? What are you listening to? What are you watching? What are you discussing? What do you treasure? There's a very interesting balance that Paul gives us here. He says, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. If there's anything worthy of praise, if there's excellence, think about these things. I just want to say briefly the two sides of it. First of all, Paul does not say the only thing you can ever think about is something with a Christian label on it. He doesn't say only listen to Christian music, only watch Christian movies, only read a book written by a Christian. It would be kind of an easy out, wouldn't it? You just go to the bookstore, find that thing, and you bring it home. The problem is sometimes Christians can produce things that fail in other categories. and are not always excellent or sometimes not even as true as we would like. Paul gives us a different standard. He says what we're called to is a practice of discernment to reflect on what we are bringing into our heads. When we bring in what is true and good and honorable and excellent, often those things will come from Scripture as we listen to sermons or hear songs of praise sung. Those are great ways to think of things that are good, honorable, and true. But let's not pretend for a moment that any of us here spend 100% of our time listening to sermons or praise songs. You watch other movies and you do other things. Paul doesn't rule that out. He says, whatever is true and lovely and commendable, We're able through the discernment and guidance of God's Spirit to find things that are true in other places. They may not be the fullness of God's truth, but sometimes we hear a story, maybe a historical drama of something that's honorable. We can say, "I see something there that I value." I would much rather think about that, wouldn't you? To 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 dwell and read and meditate on that which is good. How easily, if we're not careful. Will we find ourselves watching that which is outright false, listening to that which is celebrating destruction, hearing the voices speaking to us from the television or the radio, or out of our books that celebrate not which something which is good in God's created world, but something that's harmful and destructive? Finally, I think as a lead into that, we're reminded that really those conversations happen together in groups. We're, this type of discernment that is called for in the Christian life flows out of a community of people living together, loving each other, and seeking to follow God. The final thing we see in, the, in this, in this uh, passage, this final command, is where Paul says, practice the things that I do. So I simply want to close by reminding you in the, of the importance of watching others and following their example. It's related to this whole bigger picture. But Paul assumes that on one hand, God is present. We can respond to him in prayer. And yet even then, Paul says, verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be in you. Paul believed it was necessary for the Philippian church to learn from each other. He goes on then in verse 10 to talk about how thankful he was that the Philippian church was thinking about him again. He needed their support. He needed their prayers. Even the Apostle Paul, the great early leader of the church, found great comfort in the Philippians thinking of him. He knew the importance of community. It's in community that we learn as we watch from others. That's how we learn, isn't it? That's how your kids learn. That's how they learn to speak and act. I think of mundane things I do. I was doing a work project around the house with some uh, electrical stuff. And whenever I do it, I I stop. I'm not great at this. And I have to think, all right, what would my father-in-law do right now? Because he's usually right on a house project. And my first instinct is almost always wrong. (laughs) So I have to retrain myself. But how much more so in the life of the church do we learn to be a people who follow Jesus as we learn from each other? The reason we gather as a church, the reason we seek to live in community and community groups and Bible studies and mentoring relationships is that God has wired us to be relational. It's not just the electric that I think about when other people helping me. There are all kinds of problems in life where I find myself thinking, what would that friend do here now? we're not we're all fallible we're all potentially wrong we all can make errors but god really does work through other people to help us grow in maturity and wisdom as we bring these things full circle we find that we respond to the presence of god by cultivating a heart of rejoicing by practicing reasonableness with outsiders by seeking god in prayer and holding before him the things we can't control By discerning what we think about, what we put into our heads, what we put before our eyes, and finally, how we learn from each other as we live in community. It's in the midst of these things that the presence of God is made known. This objective reality, the Lord is at hand, begins to become our experience. Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content in all things I've learned that God can strengthen me. I I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Remember the context. The context for Paul of all things was I can suffer and I can abound. (laughs) He's not suggesting that suddenly everything's easy. But he says in both of those places I see the power of God working for me. Friends, my desire is we'd move together towards a a less anxious new year. I don't think any of us Uh, Those of us that experience uh, struggles with anxiety as a a, a deep and profound reality Um, probably won't find that it instantly ends. But it can be the place in which together we move towards God and see His power and presence working for us. Let's close in prayer.